0: Chapter 54. I will remind you what happened in the prior 53 chapters. <laughs> so um, let me briefly, uh, and I'll spend a little more time than I usually do as far as introduction uh, this morning, just because I do want to spend some time kind of resituating us uh, in the book after our um, summer in the Beatitudes. So if you recall, um, I kind of grouped the first 39 chapters. Uh, under this issue of, um, or the question of, who will Israel trust? Uh, Will they trust the nations around them, nations like Assyria and Egypt? Will they trust themselves, or um, will they turn to God and exercise trust in him? Uh, What prevents Israel from being what God intended for them to be? And the fundamental issue that Isaiah presented to us was their inability to trust God, beginning with King Ahaz's decision to turn to the Assyrians rather than rest upon God in chapter 7, um, and then concluding with that great act of King Hezekiah's faith in chapters 36-38, um, where he trusted in God uh, when faced uh, by the invasion of the Assyrians. Um, Isaiah presents a message of a faithful God calling his people to trust in him. And even after King Hezekiah's great prayer and miraculous deliverance, you know, the, where the, you know, this army that's besieging them in a night, God does away with them. Um, but even after that, you know, the, the first section kind of ended on that note of where King Hezekiah, again, resorts to trusting in his material possessions. He trusts in self-pride. He boasts to Babylonian uh, envoys of his his great wealth and his kingdom's great wealth. And, and God pronounces the judgment that Israel will go into to captivity at the hand of the Babylonians. So then a new section starts in chapter 40. Um, there, there was a, a, a major change we saw when we shifted from 39 to 40. And um, the question there is, what does it mean that the God who, um, who had delivered from Assyria, what did it mean that he wouldn't deliver from Babylon? Did he still love them? Was he still trustworthy? Would he still be the holy one like whom there was no other? Would they still be his people even though they had been carried into exile for their sins? So if the major message of that first half of the book centered on trust, the main message of the second half of the book is restoration and a divinely accomplished restoration. Um, and th- the underlying questions Israel has is, can God restore? Does he have the power to restore? And then that, that deeper question, does he want to restore? Um, uh, so, and the, the message that Isaiah has given us is God not only has the ability to deliver his people, but he also wants to do so. Far from having given up on his people because of their sins, he intends to use their lives as incontrovertible evidence of his sole deity. He's the Lord of history who delivered those um, who had turned to him, and he continues to be the Lord of history to deliver those um, who would turn to him in faith. Um, and the, the message we've kind of been seeing is God's trustworthiness does not end at the point of our disobedience. And the main figure um, from chapters 40 to 53 uh, has been the servant of the Lord, who Isaiah has presented in four distinct portraits. So that first portrait was in chapter 42, where the coming of the servant established justice, not just in the particular kingdom of Israel but would bring justice to the entire earth and not establish justice with the power of the world, but with a loving compassion that would not bruise a tender reed. God declares to the servant in that chapter, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The second portrait of this servant uh, took place in chapter 49, and there the emphasis uh, um, is on the servant who remembers and restores his people. Isaiah uses the physical captivity of the Judeans to transition into the moral and spiritual captivity of Israel and the whole world to their sins. Chapter 49, uh, verse, it, it's too light, a, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the, to the end of the earth. Chapter 50 Turn to the servant's own point of view and the distinctive feature of that third servant song is how it elaborates the sufferings of the servant. So we were introduced to the servant of the Lord, and now we see he's the suffering servant of the Lord. And in that chapter, it stressed the disobedience of Israel um, and the righteous servant's obedience. The servant willingly suffers because he obeys God, not because he's being punished for his own unrighteous disobedience. And the question that kind of arose um, out of that chapter or out of that servant song was why does this su- righteous servant suffer? Um, and the fourth portrait, the one of the servant in chapter 53, answered uh, that question. Um, it, well, it actually answered two questions. Why does the servant suffer and how can a sinful people be restored and made holy? And chapter 53 answered both those questions. We, like sheep, have strayed from God, chapter 53 tells us, and the path of righteousness. But the servant, like a sheep, has taken our sins upon him and willingly sacrificed himself to propitiate our sins. The servant humbly obeyed even to death, but God exalted him and increased his offspring. Far from his death being fruitless and futile, Because of his obedience, the servant will have the most fruitful life ever lived. Far from being childless, he will have children in every race on the earth. And that that theme of uh, we think the servant, because of his death, has been defeated, but that's his moment of triumph. We think his life is ending futilely, uh, with him despised by the nations, um, but instead uh, it issues forth in fruitfulness. And that's where chapter 54 uh, begins, taking that that picture of um, out of barrenness coming forth abundance. A desolate people, sterile in their sin, receive more offspring and a greater inheritance than they ever could imagine. The adulterous bride, cast out for a moment because of her sin, receives her husband, whose eternal covenant love will never depart from her. The city... um, stripped um, by um, uh, affliction and storm-tossed, uh, is restored and made beautiful by the perfect peace of God. And so those are the kind of images we'll be talking about uh, in chapter 54. So let me uh, read the chapter for us, and then I'll, I'll uh, open us some prayer. So Isaiah chapter 54, starting in verse 1. Sing! O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In in overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and uncomforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and for terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me, Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fail; shall fall because of you. Behold, I've created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Thus far, the word of God, let's ask him to uh, increase its hearing in our hearts and to fill us with his spirit that we might uh, understand and apply it to our lives. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do worship you uh, for your great act of creation that uh, by your word and spirit all was made out of nothing, and all made perfect. Even uh, humanity, made in your image. And yet, uh, we sinned. And by our sin, we marred your creation. And indeed, uh, we uh, brought death into this world. But rather than uh, leave us to ourselves, rather than uh, abandon us, you and your love redeemed us, that you made the propitiation for sin that we could not make for ourselves, that you bridged the gulf between uh, yourself and us that we could not bridge, that you brought life out of death, and that you have restored uh, your people uh, to yourself. And that you have uh, pledged your eternal, everlasting love that will never let us go. And indeed, you filled us with your very spirit that we can lead the lives that you call us to lead. That we can grow in the grace and sanctification that you uh, uh, act in us uh, by your spirit. Lord God, as we study the words of this prophet Isaiah. uh, Show us the depths of your love for us and the results of what your son Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and the joyful hope that we have by living in your life-giving spirit. Show us that this day. We can't see it with human eyes. We need the eyes of faith that you alone provide to see and to perceive, and to hear your good word to us. And we ask these things in Christ's name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so three word pictures in this chapter. Um, uh, And I I like the, the label that the ESV has given to this chapter. Three word pictures that describe this eternal covenant of peace. So the first one in the first five verses is a portrait of a barren woman. The second, uh, from verses 6 through 10, is of a deserted wife. And the third, um, from 11 to 17, is an afflicted, storm-tossed city. So what I want us to do this morning is just kind of work through these three images, and then at the end, hopefully kind of see their common uh, theme uh, that ties them all together. So let's start with, in verses 1 through 5, Um, you have this uh, God addressing this barren one. And um, there are several imperatives that God gives in this address to the barren one. Um, What are those imperatives? What does God call the one who is barren to do? So what are some of the things the barren one is, is instructed to do? Yeah, Ronnie. Yeah, burst into song and shout for joy. And notice that's the exact opposite of what we anticipate someone who is barren of doing. We would expect the barren woman to be mournfully bewailing her lack of offspring and and pleading for an increase, you know, sort of um, think Hannah, you know, uh, um, outside uh, the court. (laughs) You know, are you drunk? You know, she's just pouring out you know, her grief before the Lord. That's what we expect, uh, a barren one. But instead, the barren one is instructed to sing, to shout with joy. Okay, good. And we'll come back sort of why in just a second. So one instruction is to joyfully sing. All right, good. What else is this barren one instructed to do? Make room. room. (laughs) Yeah, in larger tents. (laughs) break out the plans for that addition to the house. <laughs> and and again, this is the opposite of what we would expect. You know, we would expect the barren one to be, you know, bringing in the tents, you know, to to downsize, you know, to we don't need all this this space. Uh there's there's no reason for it. But instead, you know, enlarge and enlarge beyond what you think you need because <laughs> you're going to need it and more. So, yeah, So, um, in larger tents, so sing for joy in larger dwelling. Um, What else is she instructed, or the barren one instructed to do? Um, Yeah, and again, that's what we would expect. I mean, that's the opposite of what we would expect for a barren one. You know, again, in, in this age, you know, children are your... Uh, retirement plan (laughs) Um, you know offspring are your pathway to security and so without those offspring there's a lot of fear Um, uh, there's a lot of um, shame you know to sort of uh, again to go back to examples we have of of barrenness you know think of the way that uh, Leah mocks Rachel for her lack of children, and sort of, you know, surely this is a sign that God loves me more than you. And the way, all the kind of, of fear and shame that a barren one uh, might feel um, and does feel. But in this case, um, no fear. Um, fear. Um, uh, uh, fear not disgrace. Um, fear not uh, shame. There's nothing to fear. So we have someone who's labeled barren, commanded to sing in larger tents, and fear, no disgrace or shame. Why? What's the reason for this confident uh, joy? So as we see these commands, on what basis does this barren person have? To, to sing for joy, to enlarge her tense, to not fear. Yeah, Geraldine. Yeah, that there's this, you know, the change is who her husband is. Um, and there's a sense, and I want us to sort of think of chapter 54 being the the product of chapter 53, Um, that this is the result of that propitiation for the sin, that peace made with God that the servant accomplishes in chapter 53. The result of it is chapter 54. And so this change is produced so that the one who had been barren and fruitless uh, is now, you know, enlarging her tents. And notice she's enlarging her tents not because of her own reproductive capacity, but because of who she's wed to, you know, who her redeemer. So, you know, because of her maker. Um, and, uh, you know, notice the the labels that are given there. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. So her her husband, her redeemer, is the Lord God Almighty. And that God can bring fruitfulness out of barrenness. Um, and, you know, it's this beautiful picture that she's, she's more fruitful than she could ever have been by just natural capacity alone. Um, it's, it's this fruitfulness is, is beyond those who, you know, beyond those who are mothers. <laughs> this barren one, her tents will be more filled than theirs. Other things we want to say about you know why, so uh, Geraldine put her finger right on it because of what who God is and what he's done, what his relationship is um to his bride, yeah, as we think, I mean it's a beautiful picture of the church, you know to and to think of the church um it doesn't grow by natural increase. I mean, it, it does. But our real growth is that supernatural increase. That's what grows the church. It's not because people are born into it. It's because God increases the church by, by his work. Um, and it's this, this picture of the gathering, again, is so extensive. It goes beyond the nations. You know, he, this is a figure Isaiah has used a couple of times. In the past few chapters, um, you know think back where he talks about you know the remnant coming back into the land will be too many for it, <laughs> you know and again that's the we think of the remnant as being some kind of small residual leftover, but in isaiah 's con- conception of this god provided remnant it's it's more than than what was what was started with i mean it's kind of like the the fish in the loaves you know they the because of God's work in increasing his church, you know, more will uh, uh, come back into it than ever went out of it. Um, and it's this, this beautiful picture of increase of, and of supernatural increase. And it gives, you know, that charge, that her charge is to faithfully enlarge larger tents to, <laughs> to gather in these offspring that... Um, Yeah, that she had no, uh, um, yeah, that weren't the fruit of her womb. Yeah, that there, there there are plenty of reasons for shame. And notice he's like, you know, you don't have to dwell on those. You don't have to forgive those. For you don't have to remember those. You can for, forget that. Again, not because it's being brushed under the rug, but because it's been covered. It's been dealt with. I mean, again, it's the this chapter is is working through, well, what does it mean for um, the, the servant? to take our sins upon him. What does it mean for the servant to make peace with God for us? It means we don't have to be, you know, again, think of that picture of, of um, Christian from Pilgrim's Progress, you know, burdened, um, weighed down by his sins. And to have that, you know, he's giving us a picture of that burden as being lifted. He doesn't have to remember it. Anymore, he doesn't have to be weighed down by it anymore, because God has done something uh, for uh, for her behalf, um, for the church's behalf. Oh, I saw another hand over here. Um, I, I think the tent is is broader than Israel. I mean, I think it's the the tent here is the church um, at large, and I, I think a lot of commentators note that the the um, the familiar words that he's using for Israel don't show up in the next three chapters, so um, you know we don't see Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean the 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 conception here is that this people that's going to be gathering in this tent is beyond just one nation state. You know, it's this this is it, this tent is going to stretch to encompass the entire earth. Um, so I think it definitely includes Israel and starts with Israel, but it's broader than that. Yeah, that and to possess almost in the sense of inheritance, you know, that um, that that, you know, this is your inheritance that's being given to you. To, to possess the nations i mean it's it's again it's the idea of um you know receiving um, as Scott was saying, receive something receiving something that's totally undeserved, and beyond what you know not only is it undeserved it's beyond what you could ever imagine receiving um, you know to sort of think you know a, a barren one would re- rejoice if there was you know one child, you know imagine if you know. There, there are hundreds of children, <laughs> you know. So it's sort of like, you know, you know, think how glad Hannah was, you know, just with Samuel, <laughs> um, and she's granted other children were told after Samuel, but you know that 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 could be it for you know, and she's thrilled, so thrilled she's willing to you know to give them back to God, <laughs> um, you know, she's so joyful just for the one, and and again God blesses her beyond her conception. And that's the kind of picture we're being given here. All right, great. Anything else we want to say about picture number one? Okay, so let's turn to picture number two. Um, in verses uh, 6 through 10, we have the picture of, the, for the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit. So the second image is a deserted wife. Um, And not only a deserted wife, but notice um, in verse 7, for a brief moment, I deserted you. Um, uh, Verse 8, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. So what does it mean for God to have been the deserter? And why should we trust the, the promise that he won't desert his bride again so for the for the bride's unfaithfulness he's he he deserted her for a moment so yeah <laughs> do we have any any uh any sense that um, this bride's not going to be unfaithful again? I mean I mean you 're putting your finger right on it for her unfaithfulness and he doesn't uh, you know it, he he, he, um, he doesn 't detail all the unfaithfulness here. There are other places in the prophets that use the same image of a bride and as an adulterous bride and and shows god 's just cause for um, for issuing her a certificate of divorce or for sending her away. And so, but he says, well, that's not gonna happen again. Yeah, because of the acts of the servant, um, there there will never be a, a desertion. And again, you get different commentators. Calvin says it wasn't just a it wasn't a real desertion; it was the appearance of desertion because you know the bride stopped looking at her husband and turned away to her own sin, and so um, because of that, you know, she felt deserted. So I mean, so again, we can kind of get into the that, but. To sort of, I, I think the claim that Isaiah is making, though, is more along your lines. Because of what the servant had done, there is nothing that can break this marital covenant. Um, that the servant act um, undoes what. Again, to go back to Scott's point, you know, all the th- shameful things that the bride has done, all of that. Um, is, is has been paid for, um, has been propitiated um, by the servant. All that just wrath, and again, it's just wrath, just anger of of God. All of that has been turned away because the Son, the servant, has taken it upon himself um, what the bride deserved, and because of that act, there can never be any separation there can never be any break into in this marital relationship between Christ and his bride yeah teresa yeah it's 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 a fulfillment of that you know again there's when we read the covenants It's not like, um, you know, it's not a succession of, well, that contract didn't work. Let's initiate a new contract. They're all an unfolding of that first contract. (laughs) I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this people, you know, throughout the history of Israel, you know, they turn away. You know, they exercise lack of trust. um, They don't always exhibit faith. But their eternal standing isn't before God isn't um, dependent on their faithfulness, it's dependent upon God's faithfulness to them. and He can be faithful to them because that sin has been dealt with. Again, that's the, the problem. How can a sinful people be in the presence of a holy God? Well what happens when the holy God stands in their place and takes away their sin? Um, and again, notice that that word is showing up. Uh, in this chapter again. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. Because of the Lord's act of redemption on their part, they do not have to fear separation from God anymore. Um, And notice um, the permanency of this restored relationship. Um, Everlasting love Um, uh, just like I swore to Noah (laughs) uh, that I'd never cover the earth in a flood again, so I'll swear to you that I will never turn from you in my anger. The mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. You know, and notice the emphasis as we think about, you know, all right, the, the bride will never be deserted again. It's not because of any quality of the bride. It's because of the qualities of the bridegroom. You know, notice that three times the word compassion. For, with great compassion, I will gather you, verse 7. With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, verse 8. Um, uh, my steadfast love shall not depart from you, my covenant of peace shall not be removed. says the Lord, who has compassion on you um, so it's again it's the product of the of the one who has set uh, his love upon his bride, not because of you know uh, inequalities the bride herself possesses um, it's because of the change that the bridegroom has wrought in the bride. Yeah, the, the contrast, yeah, the contrast is that, that, that judgment you felt, that anger you felt, that wrath you felt was small, you know, for a moment. You know, notice how it's, you know, it it might feel long, it might have seemed long. (laughs) Yeah, that's an instant, (laughs) that's a moment in a narrative of eternal love, you know. um, It's sort of like, you know, (laughs) um, you know, the, that's the feather on the scale compared to the, you know, 20 ton weight. (laughs) <laughs> you know it, it's a moment um, yeah you're absolutely right uh, the contrast that's being given whatever anger you or, or wrath you might have felt uh, coming from me was momentarily and that is a blip compared to the to the everlasting love that I have for you anything else we want to say about our second picture um, so we've got Beautiful picture of a barren one um, who is is blessed with an unbelievable fullness that she sings for joy and enlarges her tents and has no reason to fear. Then we have the picture of uh, a bride who had been deserted because of her unfaithfulness, and she knows that, mm, you know, I could be unfaithful again, but that... Something, her bridegroom, who her, because of who her bridegroom is and what her bridegroom has done for her, she has absolutely no reason to fear separation, that this covenant will not be broken. Yeah, Daniel. Creation can be undone, <laughs> and I, I'm glad you, you, you know, to sort of see the tie. So, you know, um, uh, as Geraldine said, you know, uh, the barren one's husband is is her creator, is the maker, you know, is the one who's created all the earth. The whole earth can be undone <laughs> to, to be dissonant, you know, and God's love uh, for his bride will still be there everything else can completely unravel um, and, and be, you know, put back, we've been disassembling like Playmobil and Legos and like putting them back in the original boxes because yes, I'm that kind of person who saved the original boxes and make sure all the pieces go back in each box. Um, you know, all of that can be undone and um, but the, the, you know, all the creation can be undone but the this eternal love will still remain. All right. Well, let's talk. Um, We've got about ten minutes to talk about our third image. Um, uh, the city. And even though he doesn't use the word city, um, you know, notice he's using all the elements of a city. Um, uh, I will set your stones uh, in antimony. Lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carnage. Carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. Um, Let me turn my page so I can actually get to my question. Um, So, this third image uh, is of an afflicted, storm tossed city being rebuilt. So, what would you say this new city looks like? What are the qualities or characteristics of this, this restored city? this desolate city that's now been remade. Yeah, Ronnie. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> sparkling. Uh brilliance. Um you know, I uh confess I had to look up antimony. <laughs> Forgotten. I should know this because of chemistry, but I had to go back and look and look um and it's 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 a metallic element but it's shiny you know everything and there, there are all kinds of um, you, different translations might have different words for these stones um, that's fine because they're all kind of obscure words for different minerals um, but so we don't know have to know exactly what each element is that's not the point but the, the, the emphasis is on the sparkling brilliance of this, this restored city. You know, it, it, and it's filled with um, not common elements, but it's constructed of, of precious stones. Yeah, I, I, um, there's a great quote from Calvin. Uh, that, that's on this exact point we become living and precious stones for building the temple of God says Calvin when the Lord has formed and polished us by his spirit has added to the external preaching of word the internal efficacy of the spirit you know that you know he's transformed us uh into you know, as we think of what the city's constructed of, it's constructed of us in a sense, um, as we've been, you know, uh, what's lost has been found and has been remade by God, and uh, you know, we're the adornment of this city. Um, good. What else will we say about this um, restored city? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about, again, um, if you think back, for those of you who were with us when we did Revelation, you know, there's a reason John loves <laughs> the book of Isaiah. <laughs> is because Isaiah uh, foresaw what, what John's describing as well. You know, this renewed city of God. And city is a really important concept um, in the book of Isaiah. We don't have to go through all of it today, but because um, we 'll hit city again uh, in later chapters and and maybe there i 'll kind of work out some of of isaiah's um, urban theology but um, but just to put it in a nutshell there's a contrast between the city constructed by humanity apart from God, um, and we saw that city um, and it, it, it gave us that that uh, you know remember Barak where he gave us that picture of this um, Ugly city that's that's literally corrupting the earth and rendering it the earth barren. Um, you know, we talked a lot about the physical environment. You know how the, our environmental crises that we face are so often the product of human sinfulness, um, the growth of human of human sin. It's not the growth of people themselves, but the growth of human sin that destroys God's good creation. Um, so there's that bleak um, city that brings death, and then there's this this New Jerusalem um, that you know the city that God plants on the hill where the nations uh stream up to and the gates are wide open to receive them because there need be no reason to fear and it's that city that he's depicting for us um, this city where um yeah that That is that perfect peace and rest, and where what, what is, you know, valued above all things is common because there's something else attracting people's attention. Yeah, Teresa. Um, I I would say it's a symbol of what heaven's like. um, Is what I, I, you know, um, the New Jerusalem is. It's the city of God. So, So this is a picture of of yeah, of us uh remade eternally in our eternal home. Yeah, John. yeah that the lord himself is is will be the instructor <laughs> and you know the the children that will fill the city you know won't yeah that they will be dir- you know this direct instruction by god and again it's the way that um you know calvin again on this verse that's what he was talking about you know it's the this in in you know for him there's the ex- external preaching of the word, but it's the internal preaching of the sp- taking that external word and preaching it to ourselves. That's what makes um, effic- efficacious instruction, you know. Um, it's not me preaching to you. It's not Jerry preaching to you. It's not Matthew's preaching, not their external words, but it's that inner work of the Spirit um, instructing us directly, um, taking, you know, Taking that word and applying it, instructing, um, giving us that, that internal instruction, instruction of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it's, it's you know, when anytime we think about um, what Christ has accomplished, you know, we're always talking about the now and the not yet. We always get a foretaste of it now. Um, And again, that's the the role, part of the role of the Holy Spirit is this, the way that the Spirit instructs us directly, um, you know, through the word, through the means of grace, God's Spirit working directly in our hearts. Um, And, and, you know, it's not, again, that's why I always pray, (laughs) you know, before every Sunday school lesson. It doesn't matter what I've prepared this week, you know, what matters is what the Spirit is going to teach us in this moment. And um, imagine that, again, that's a foretaste of what heaven's like, this direct instruction by God. Good. So we've got a beautiful, sparkling, bejeweled city, (laughs) bedazzled. Um, We've got direct instruction by God himself. Um, What else might we say about our city? yeah so as we think about the city and what its defenses are they're they're god provided and um and you know we're running out of time so we can't get too hung up on um on um verse fifteen, but I mean maybe we can come back to it if anyone stirs up strife, it's not for me that's not a declaration that God's not sovereign every, over everything it's a declaration that god's not going to bring up strife <laughs> you know in this city uh that because it goes on to say, behold, I've created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. So it's, it's not a declaration that he's not in control of any enemies that might be. He, he's saying, yeah, you don't have to worry about those because they're all gonna come to naught. Um, you know as we think of this city that's um, in perfectly free from strife at perfect peace um, again it's it's the result of the sovereign act of God on that city's behalf that he's the establisher of peace uh, that he's the one who's produced its its protection all right so uh, one last question we're at our time, but I do want us to to sort of get to our you know, so what are these three images? Yeah, you know, what what's kind of the common message of all three, of our barren one, um, of our um, uh, an, a barren wife enlarging her tents, a deserted wife entering into an everlasting covenant of marriage, and a bejeweled city at perfect peace with nothing to fear. What are those images? Yeah, you know, what's the what's the message of all those? What do those mean for us? What do they tell us about um, our relationship to God? What's your, yeah, what's your main takeaway point <laughs> from this, the, these three images? Yeah, Teresa. Yeah, the confidence that we should have. Because, you know, again, our confidence doesn't rest on ourselves. Because we know, um, again, because we have, because um, we have been instructed by God, we know our inherent instability. Um, we know our lack of faith. Um, so our confidence rests not on ourselves but on Him, um, and we can be exceedingly confident. I mean, so confident that we can enlarge our tents. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, good. Yeah, that there's only one source uh, for restoration. Um, This isn't uh, one, uh, I like that that idea of feeling. There's only, of this gap, um, uh, there's only one who can fill that need. Um, Of this lack that we have, there's only one who can can fill that um, desire that we have. Yeah, again, uh, part of Israel's problem, part of our problem so often is thinking of uh, you know, the, that the scene, <laughs> it begins with us and it ends with us, you know, that the scene world um, encompasses, um, you know, what's important. And there's this sovereign, almighty creator God um, whose love for us goes beyond the extent of the creation, um, you know, both in time and space. Again, that always gives me headaches to think about because it's beyond my mental capacity. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's this love that knows no boundaries. You know, everything else um, I, I encounter, that my senses encounter, has some kind of limit, some kind of boundary. Um, and he's presenting us with this, Um, Limitless, boundless love. Anything else we want to say about our, uh, our portrait here? So it's, you know, the thing I want you to take away from this is because of chapter 53, you know, that great presentation of, you know, that great prophecy of Christ's work, now we see this prophecy, this declaration of what that work produces. It produces confident joy um, that doesn't have to fear, um, that can rest um, in the the filling and instruction of this God um, who made all things and who who has committed himself to us for all time. That is a beautiful picture and uh, a reason for worship if I've ever heard one. So let's close in prayer. Almighty God, we do worship and praise you for uh, truly your love for us um, knows no bounds. And uh, it's hard for us to imagine uh, the depths of your love that would cause uh, you to place the suffering we deserved upon your son to restore us to you forever. what an amazing picture that, um, that we can spend a lifetime um, trying to probe and never finding the limits of that love um, and of this uh, covenant, this eternal covenant that you have uh, accomplished through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And as Teresa said, that you took um, both sides of the covenant, both sides of the obligation you took upon yourself that we might have peace and restoration and righteousness um, and holiness because they are gifts from you. Um, help us uh, in the coming hour to worship with joy. Help us as a people to always be uh, looking in confident faith to enlarge our tents to um to share this good news and to be participants. And you're bringing in a uh, numberless offspring uh, that will cover the entirety of the earth um, as you establish your everlasting bride, uh, your church. Uh, We pray these things in Christ's name, by the power of your spirit. Amen.